All right, listeners, welcome back. Glendon, I have one important question for you. Excellent. I know that we've talked about alcohol in the past and you've discussed that you really aren't interested in ever diving deep into the realm of alcoholic beverages. Deep. But I'm going to take a vodka bath. Oh, God. (laughs) I have to know, Glendon, if when this is all over, once like we're vaccinated and like COVID's on the down low and we can all have like a big party at my place before I leave forever. Will you have your first drink at that party? So that's a really interesting conversation because basically like I turned 18 and then just never got around to it. Um, (laughs) And uh, like, it's not a huge deal, but at the same time, I'm like, I feel like that should be a moment of some sort. (laughs) I almost, I, I almost drank at my sister's wedding and then I didn't for whatever reason. And so at this point, I've just like, it's never felt momentous enough. So maybe I will. <laughs> that would be fun. What I hear Glendon saying is there there needs to be a ceremony, a ritual, <laughs> an Ebenezer Ooh. stone to mark Ooh. it off. And I, I acknowledge in you, Glendon, the fear, um, because I believe that alcohol can be used for harm mm. to oneself and to one's community. And it can also be used for good. And I think the difference is like in the Bible, alcohol is used in festival and feasting mm. and in a celebratory way that brings the community together as an expression of abundance and security and love. But alcohol can be used to numb one's feelings and uh, numb our ability to feel hard feelings. And so in culture, if you've seen alcohol hurt people, it can be really, mm. really scary. And that's a real fear, and I honor that. But it can also be used to create joy and laughter and honest conversation that could be Mm. good. Yeah, you need a community that respects you and wants to protect you in that. So, no, exactly. I I think about it a lot. Not a lot, but I think about it occasionally because I'm like, there is a sense where I know myself to be. If I say impulsive, it might sound weird to like people Mm. who know me, but also like whatever and but i I also think i mean i'm like 23 now so i feel like it's also power possible that i've given it way too much power over me and i should Mm -hmm. just not let it have that i mean i think maybe the term emotional better describes you Mm. you can get caught up in your emotions and end up you know 10 deep sure Mm -hmm. 10 is a big number Noah. i'm not gonna lie at I would probably die. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, it depends on. Like four, four deep is pretty big, pretty big deal. There we go. <laughs> God, no. <laughs> All right. Hmm. Anyway, I guess I should introduce our guest. Um, yeah. That's Nikayla <laughs> Rees, who is pastor at Awakened Church and also one of the theology profs at Ambrose University. Um, mm-hmm. I think she's taught Glendon. I think maybe she taught me for like one subclass once, like four mm-hmm. years ago. And yeah, she wanted to come on the podcast because I, I sent out a tweet and we were asking for someone who has relationship experience. 
<laughs> because this is the Valentine's Day episode. Oh my goodness. Okay. And, and if it were just me and Glendon, it would just be a really sad episode. <laughs> I mean, we've kind of done that episode already. Exactly. Well, that's amazing. No, I saw a call out for like anyone and I was like, I don't know if I have anything to offer this uh, particular <laughs> episode or topic. And I don't know if I have anything interesting to say for you and your listeners, but I think you're both just great individuals. And I know the feeling because I also host a podcast. I know that feeling of like, who should we ask? And like, will they say yes? And I'm like, you know, I'm available anytime if you have a topic that you think I would add meaning to. I'm just trying to think. It, it's weird because I know like some of the people who are listening are like 16, 17. Um, but in my Wait, mind, really? I'm like, oh yeah. Like, oh God. Some, some, of, some of my camp kids, they don't care. Um, but I'm in my mind, I'm like, wow, we have an adult on the podcast. Um, oh no! <laughs> I mean, I'm pretty sure last time, last Valentine's Day, I introed it with the like, Glendon and Ryan Johnson love fan fiction. So <laughs> oh, that dear. wouldn't surprise me. It's amazing. Well, I would love to offer any adult wisdom I can yeah. to this community. Like our previous guests, we've had like Sarah Fan and Maddie McBlain and other people who I'm forgetting, but. I'm- I genuinely believe Maddie McBlain will be a prime minister of Canada one day. So you've oh, probably yeah. already interviewed more adult people than me. That's fair. I, I would love for us to get to the point in the society where Maddie McBlain becomes like the prime minister. And we can say, yeah, we had her on like our garbage podcast. <laughs> hey, it's a step above garbage. It's like recycling. I think there could be a mutual, like a mutuality where... You get to say one day, Prime Minister Maddie McBlain was on our podcast, but the only reason Maddie McBlain is able to become Prime Minister of Canada is because she put on her CV that she was a guest of the podcast hosted by Noah and Glendon. Excellent. It's, it's a mutuality. I hope I'm never famous enough that Maddie can put me on his CV. <laughs> Honestly, <laughs> you are. That would be terrifying. I feel like that that would be a very like emblematic um and not end future of our friendship or like maddie's a president like prime minister i'm a writer or whatever and noah's like some crazy mystic that nobody talks about but everyone's connected to you know i suspect that um glendon and noah and maddie mcblain and maybe even myself are more important than any of us imagine and so it's okay to just uh be open and let your voice be heard there we go yeah i i I don't know if i trust myself in situations of stress to say things accurately and concisely (laughs) that's why i have full control of the edit of this podcast because if i did i would probably be canceled that is true (laughs) god um you haven't an inner critic and an inner advocate. Mm-hmm. True. Nikayla, have you have you listened to this podcast like at all? I did. I actually listened to your purity culture episode like three times. Oh wow! Oh wow! Um, I've listened to a few other episodes. Um, I'm not very good at finishing any episode of any podcast. I kind of have. I get like thirty minutes in, and I'm like, I feel like I understand what's happening. But I was really, I really appreciated an episode you did a while ago on purity culture. And I 
used it as a resource in a lecture that I gave at Ambrose. Wait, oh. really? <laughs> Wait, yeah, what? That's what I'm saying. Your voice is important. You are very intelligent individuals, and I wish I was as smart as you when I was your age. Oh. Uh-huh. Yeah, your podcast is doing good. Wait, yeah. well, wait, which what was which the context? Class? Uh, I was giving a, a teaching a course on the Pentateuch. And I was talking about purity culture in the book of Leviticus, where it was about being pure and impure based mm. on whether you touched blood or you touched bodily fluids or a dead body of an animal or something. And I said, every culture has a purity culture where there are certain things that make you clean or unclean. And when we read the Bible, we might say, that's weird. Just because you had eczema, you're impure or you touched this thing, you're impure. I said, you know, another culture might look at our Western evangelical purity culture and say the same thing. <laughs> yeah. Wow. I can't believe we were a resource. Yeah, you were. You're great. I, I think I cited you as well. I hope so. Trying to remember. I feel like I would have been in that class and I don't remember. You don't remember me citing you? Oh, I don't. Oh, no. But it was also like over a year ago. And well, the purity culture episode came out like pretty much a year ago from. Today. I guess so. Yeah, yeah. It might have been the Valentine's episode you did last year. Yeah, I think that's. I think that's true. Was that the one where we talked about relationship experience? I think mm-hmm. so. Oh no! <laughs> it was that I... or the mental health episode. No, I don't think it was the mental health episode. That was different. I listened to that one, mm-hmm. but you were you both had a lot of really good things to say. You had a mm-hmm. good grasp on it, and I was like, wow. When I was like twenty two at Bible college. I was just in the in the sharp talons of purity culture, and I I didn't know that. So, my my critical thinking skills about it were nil. I feel like we just ended up with people around us that brought us out of purity culture, or at least mm-hmm. brought us to awareness of what purity culture is, so that we could pull ourselves out of it. We just got lucky, basically, is all I'm saying. It helps to make a lot of mistakes, but also be like a very reflective person. Mm-hmm. Mm. Also true. So what are your hopes and wishes for this episode? Well, I asked Glendon yesterday. I'm like, Glendon, should we prepare anything for this episode or should we just wing it? And I was prepared to like do a little bit of like chatting back and forth, do some thinking. Glendon's like, yeah, wing it, my go- my my guy. I combined guy and dude. My good, <laughs> my good. Anyway, he was like, "Yeah, just wing it." And I'm like, "Okay, um, I guess." Um, I I was thinking about at least when it comes to Glendon and I. I know because we're type fours, we're both prone to the idealization of relationships and mm. everything that comes with it. Um, so like, you get caught up in fantasies about like, oh, this is going to be the thing that completes me. This is. This is what I would need in my life so I'm not lonely anymore or so that I'm happy or something. Um, I know I've been prone to that in the past. And so I think talking about like how, I don't know, unhelpful that can be is one of the strands I thought we could talk about. But that was just one. We could talk about a lot of different things. Well, that's amazing because I don't think you're alone in thinking that and I see a lot of people engaged to be married and they kind of have this big smile pasted on their face because they also think that and they sort of march headlong into the, the wedding day. And, it, and, and then when I reflect on my experience as a pastor in, in a few different churches, I think that some of the loneliest people I know are married people. 
Mm. And it's a tragedy because I think, yeah, we all bought into this lie that, yeah, your spouse would complete you or your partner, sorry, would complete you. And the problem is that like your, well, there's a few problems, but I think once you get on the other side of the wedding day or the big commitment, that loneliness um, makes you feel like a failure. And so you don't have anywhere to talk about it. You just think, oh, there's something wrong with me or there's something wrong with my partner. And so a lot of married people are sort of very isolated and feel guilty because they shouldn't be isolated. What a privilege it is to be married. And Mm. not to say that you should, you know, be grateful that you're single. Marriage is the worst. Like, that's not what I mean. But I think marriage uh, serves an individual in a different way than any of us imagined when we were un unpartnered. Mm. Yeah. I like to think of it where I have a lot of work to do emotionally. And as an individual, I, I come with a bit of baggage, say, you know, attachment issues from my childhood trauma, uh, ways of seeing the world and ways of responding to conflict and ways of responding to rejection and, and, and a sense of failure or pain. And that's a whole bunch of stuff I'm carrying that nobody can see. And there, there's, um, you know, a guy out there carrying his own stuff of the same nature. And when you get married, it's not that now you fix my stuff and I fix your stuff. It's that now I help you carry your stuff and you help me carry my stuff. So my load isn't any lighter, but I'm not alone in the work. <laughs> mm. Mm. Yeah. I remember coming to a realization where like the whole like longing for relationship, et cetera, was less like a longing for a person in particular, as much as just like a longing to be known. Mm. And yeah. It, like it, it, I, the more I think about that now and kind of like, the image that you just said it's like i have no conception of what that even looks or feels like like Mm -hmm. it's so i don't know it's so different it's so like yeah it's like almost alien Mm. just the idea of that level of intimacy is like what does that even mean what is that how does that make you Mm. feel that it's alien who me yeah um i don't know like I guess I'm in a stage right now where kind of the place that I've been in is essentially one where it's like trying to, I mean, I think I talked about this a little bit in the purity culture episode, but basically coming into a better sense of self and sense of like self-worth and all these different things. Like I, I had a moment this summer where I realized like, and this is this ties into purity culture as well because i i'd spent so much time being like oh i want a relationship and then my my good doctrine christian self was like no you need more jesus um <laughs> you need you need to love jesus more and then you will be fulfilled etc cetera, etc cetera. and then i remember just finally coming to that question and being struck by an answer that was not my own which was no you need to love yourself more and then you will then you will be fulfilled. Um, then you will find whatever like peace, joy, etc. And so, I guess my my journey. Th- th- I don't know if this answers your question at all, but has kind of been towards that 
and sometimes I'm there and sometimes I'm not. And in the middle, it's sort of like, I don't know. It, I guess in terms of like how alien that feels, I, I can't even describe it because it's like, it just feels different. Um, and it feels like something that I think I'm trying to make, this sounds really sad. I'm trying to make it not sound sad because I don't feel sad about it. Um, I feel neutral, I guess. Like, I, I guess for a long time, I felt like, oh, if you do this, this, and this, you will end up in a happy, flourishing relationship. And more and more as I've matured, I realized, no, it's like, it's not this thing that's just around the corner. Like, it'll happen, and you won't necessarily know when. And you won't necessarily know if you're ready for it or not. And so, mm-hmm. as I've become accepting of that, it's less of like this anticipation and more is like, I don't know what this is. It'll happen eventually, but like, who knows when? Mm-hmm. I guess that's what I mean by alien. <clears throat> One thing that comes to my mind is that, so you said that both of you are a four and my husband is a four. And something that's coming together for me is like, I remember, so I met David, that's my husband's name, at Ambrose. We were students. And he was not interested in me. <laughs> he thought I was cool, nice, you know, you're you're a great person, that's fine, but I don't think you'd be a good fit for me. But I was like pretty fixated. <laughs> and uh, he just had a really hard time committing to anything or deciding because he, he had like a real idealism about what the ideal romance would be. And I didn't really fit the bill. And... I was somewhat persistent or just content to like be a friend, I suppose. And it took like a few years of us just being friends before he was like, you know, you probably know me and care about me better than anybody, you know, any other girlfriend. He didn't, he hadn't had very many girlfriends before me, but, and yeah, I think it it was sort of hard for him to commit and, and just to sort of say, like, he kind of liked the nebulous, like, okay, I think I'm interested in this girl a little bit. And she's interested in me, obviously. But, oh, it feels really hard to, like, put a label on something. Like, that felt kind of uh, like a bondage to him to say, okay, this is what I'm doing. Because part of him always wanted to be a unique individual that wasn't bound to anything. <laughs> and uh, then once we started dating, yeah, I think I thought, like, okay, finally, I'll be happy. Because I definitely had that more romantic, like you were made for me. You're my soulmate. Um, And so once we started dating, I was like, finally, everything in the world will be beautiful, which wasn't true because we both just brought different expectations into it. But it was really hard. And then when we started dating, it was like a lot of just like long, heavy conversations about connection and relationship and commitment. and, uh, And so... It was a lot of work, but I felt like it was a lot of pressure for him because of the idealism. At the end of the day, it was like, you are my friend and you, you see some of my dark, my, my shadow Mm. side, my shame, my anger, my frustration, my insecurity. And you still in your agency choose to keep seeing me and being near me and yeah, we. I definitely remember a lot of like very, very passionate arguments about commitment and future plans. Because I'm a planner, I like having a plan. He liked having his options open at all times. He didn't want to plan. <laughs> plans felt uh, suffocating. 
And so one of the ways that we framed it that was helpful for him was like, what are your values and what are my values? And if those line up, you know, we could be together, <laughs> like we could commit. And But it, it was definitely really hard. And I, I don't envy uh, people who are in that place that we were in because it was a lot of work. Yeah, it was a lot. Big, big ideals. I thought that, that like my personality was kind of like, well, I really like this guy and we're hanging out and he's pretty cool. If only he would like ask me to be his girlfriend, then I would be happy. And so eventually he asks me kind of to be his girlfriend. It took like two years of two years in Ambrose time, which is 10 years. in. That is a lot of time. Yeah, that's 10 years for everybody else. And then we were dating, but I thought, well, but we're just kind of dating. Maybe when he like, kisses me or like some other symbol of commitment then then i'll feel like i can relax and i can trust and like be, be myself more because i'm an enneagram three so i like to kind of people please and i think that's part of what freaked him out about me is because he could tell i wasn't really being myself mm. and enneagram four is really really value people being themselves <laughs> and i couldn't do that because i just wanted to be whatever i had to be to make him like me and I thought, well, I could finally be myself if we were dating, or I could finally be myself if he like would be affectionate with me, or I could finally be myself maybe if he like said he loved me. That was a big milestone. And then still, oh, maybe I could finally be myself if he proposed. And like the 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 line kept moving mm. because of my own fear of mm. rejection and being abandoned. And I think he was sort of exhausted that like I was never satisfied. It was never enough. And he was never satisfied because he thought he sort of had this romantic ideal. And it, it wasn't until probably more than a year into marriage that we actually had to be like, are you okay with me who I am? <laughs> this mm. is, this is the me that you get. Like I think of that Mary Oliver poem, like this is the life, the one wild life that you have. Mm. What are you going to do with it? can you forgive me for being me? And can I forgive you for being you? And this won't look the way you think it ought to look. And yet there's something beautiful about seeing the world through your eyes and you seeing the world through my eyes and learning to forgive. And, and when I think of the word forgive, I don't think like you sinned against me and I'm going to not be mad about that anymore. When I think of forgive, and this is key for relationships is that, we are constantly negotiating the, the debt, meaning mm. the debt. I, I put you in a debt to me. I am a professor. You should respect me. And that's a debt I've put you in, right? Or like in a relationship, you should be available for me and you should care for me in a certain way and show me you love me in a certain way. That's a debt that I put you in. And forgiveness means releasing someone mm. from that debt and mm. saying, you don't owe me your time or a certain kind of compliment or a certain kind of attention. I release you from that. And that's terrifying because I so badly wanted to be like, no, I haven't, you didn't call me for three days. Are you kidding me? You don't even love me. <laughs> you know, you don't even care about me yourself. Yeah, like I would talk myself out of the relationship because the debt that I put that person in and, and to negotiate that, Negotiate the reality that this person is going to be a gift to me, but also a great challenge. Hmm. And so forgiving someone is like releasing them to be their full self. 
and, and, and to understand that I will, it's not that sometimes I'll feel really angry at you and sometimes I'll feel really in love with you. It's that in the same moment, I am aware of the parts of you that are very difficult to love and the parts of you that bring me unspeakable joy. And they're both present. Mm. And it would be very easy in some ways to just cut and run and say, this is way too much work. You are not worth it. And yet there would be a deep ache should I lose that part of you. And so our first few years of our relationship were really hard because like the metaphor I used, your Enneagram 4, so maybe you'll like my metaphor uses, as I thought of my partner as like a tree. And there were certain fruit that grew on that tree. And some of that fruit tasted very sweet. And some of that fruit was very bitter. And I was so fixated on the bitter fruit. And I realized eventually, like, the only way to get rid of this fruit would be to cut down the tree. But that tree also grew some very sweet fruit. And so I had to forgive and accept the tree. I don't know if that makes sense to you. Mm. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But it's a, it's a constant forgiving, as in a constant releasing you. And, and to say, I, like, the best thing in a community, and this is where, where like, I put my pastor hat on. Please forgive me for that. <laughs> it's like, my dream isn't that you would find a community that thinks you're perfect, right? So this is Pastor Nikayla saying, I hope you find a church. I, I, uh, I, I don't hope that you find a church that is perfect. And I don't hope you find a church that just says you're great. I hope you find a church that gets to know you so well that that entire church discovers that you are, in fact, a very, very difficult person to love. And then that church chooses to love you anyway. Mm. But not many people ever get close enough Mm. that the community discovers that you are, in fact, very difficult to love. And we put 99% of our energy into making sure nobody ever discovers the truth that I am difficult to love. And once you discover that this person is difficult to love, or once even worse, that person discovers that you are difficult to love, we put up a barrier. We put up a defense to keep them away. And I think the true transformative impact of love is to say, I fully, fully see that you have issues <laughs> and insecurities and an ego that could make Jesus want to drink gin straight from the cat dish. But I choose to love you anyway. Mm. And so being seen is, is half the work. I just want to say I love that and how we're all just like a mix of contradictions, a mess of contradictions, the good and the bad and whatever. It's all just part of, of being. It's all just part of being human and, and living. Yeah. I think I have so many thoughts. Um, the first thing that jumps to mind, especially with that whole conversation of like being seen by a community, I think a lot of Henry Nowen who mm. talks about that sort of thing a lot, but there's a specific quote that he has. There's like, it's, it's an article that I adore where it's like moving from solitude to, to like community to mission or something like that. And one of the things he talks about community is, is 
he like this really brief thing that he like mentions and moves on, but always sticks with me. It's like every community will have a Judas in it, and you will be a Judas for someone else, and you just mm. have to like deal with that and work through that. Um, mm. And I've been thinking about that recently um, because of two things. Um, first of all, I just got an email from my camp that I worked at this past summer and the summer before, and who I really love, but have a lot of like different opinions. There are a lot more, I guess, traditionally evangelical than I am. And mm. they sent me an email. It's like, hey, do you want to come? I, th- I think they a- they're asking me to come speak for a week because I spoke mm-hmm. there a little bit last summer. And I'm like, I don't, do you know who I am? Do you like, do you really want me speaking to your kids? Um, mm-hmm. And so trying to figure out like what I could say. And mm. I got thinking, I don't know if you had the chance to watch the last episode we put out, but um what was it called love and opposition something like that yep and it was basically we talked all in depth about like how do you love your enemy um mm-hmm. with the context of like the the january 6th uh riots had just happened and all these different things and like how do you love your enemy how does that work in practicality and just before that episode came out, you talked, I guess this was last week, this was like this past Sunday, and you talked on Sunday about like a vision of the world that's bent towards like reconciliation or something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And it was just really, really powerful, kind of like everything together, the idea of like, I can't even remember it super well, but yeah, just like the idea of like, like God, desires like reconciliation like reconciliation with enemy and all these different things Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um and so Mm -hmm. yeah kind of framing community in a very like reconciliatory light yeah yeah it's it's really attractive but also really like scary which (laughs) i mean it's kind of the core of what we're talking about i guess in terms of relationships where it's like i don't know so so much of that story just resonated with me just the idea of like like, I can't fathom the culture of, like, going to a bar and, like, picking up women, quote-unquote, mm-hmm. or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like, I I just, in my mind, like, I would need to have some sort of connection. I can't, this is a stranger, what? Yeah. Um, and so, yeah. yeah, I don't know. Just many, many scattered thoughts. Noah, do you have anything? Um, I feel like we kind of are coming back to this myth that something can make me whole or something can make me perfect Mm -hmm. or pure which ties back to a year ago the purity culture episode um it's a sequel but um Mm -hmm. i've been reading through peter roland's uh the idolatry of god and book yes and yeah and it ties into what we're talking about i think pretty well that like there's this myth that's being sold that there's something out there that will make you whole or that will that will fill that inherent lack that you feel at the at, yes that is idolatry. yeah and it's idolatry and um and a lot of times that's how even god is sold in in christian circles like god is the thing that will satisfy you or god is the thing that will make you whole and in reality it's uh, <laughs> it's not that simple but at the same time, it's also very simple in that we all feel this inherent lack. We all feel this loss um, that mm-hmm. is rooted in 
well, I mean, Rollins talks about Lacan's mirror phase and the the loss of or the the gaining of self when you are born and learning to mirror other people and and mm. their um desires and whatnot but um but ultimately we're desiring this wholeness this this perfect thing that will complete you that never actually existed at least that's what Roland Roland says and so we end up in this position where we're kind of just stuck with how we are it is what it is we we are the, what we are like at the root we're we're both already inherently whole while being also lacking which is yeah. why it's kind of like it's weird but like there's nothing that will solve that void except accepting that it's a void <laughs> Yeah, one thing I appreciate about what Rowling says, I think it's Rowling's in that book. It might be Willie Jennings in his Axe commentary. I'm thinking of. I'd have to go back and look. But the goal isn't to see God. And then when you see God, now you're happy and you don't need anything else in the whole world. Mm. The goal is to see what the light of God illuminates. Hmm. So when you stare directly at the sun, you hurt yourself, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. But it's it's by the sun that you can see everything that you can see. So it's not like I need to see God and, and, and see my partner like this kind of Western. I think Western evangelicalism absolutely commits idolatry in how it treats marriage and partnership and especially certainly mm-hmm. sex. But it, once you once you have this thing, then you'll be content. So like, if I could just see God, I would be happy. Mm. But no, it's not seeing God. That's the goal. And you can have people who like read their Bible and pray and are connected who still struggle to see God. And I think the goal is to say, it's not that you see God, it's that you see by the light of God, what God illuminates. So what is, what is being illuminated? The darkness, like the secrets, the, the hard, difficult things and so saying once i have a partner i'll be happy i'll be fulfilled i'll be complete that kind of sets you up for disappointment and loneliness and violence even because you come with those expectations on one another and the only thing worse than realizing that person doesn't meet your expectation is realizing that you don't meet that person's expectation and uh but to see what god illuminates in that for you and to see what the love you have for that person illuminates i don't know it's not what you see but what you see by Hmm. if that makes sense i really like that i've been a few years ago a friend recommended recommended a book to me and then i picked it up and then i saw it had an introduction by john piper and so i didn't read it for a year um yeah (laughs) but it's it's called things of earth and i like the idea of it but it is it reading through it feels very unsatisfying where it's like um kind of looks at like the the uh, the hymn where it's like the things of earth will grow strangely dim and he's like i don't think that's true i think um in like the glory of god the things of earth should grow bright um which i i like the image of and he kind of goes through and the book is basically an attempt to engage in the world 
and live the world fully so that you understand God more fully, mm. which again, I like a lot of it and I like the concept of it, but something feels insubstantial. And I wonder if it's that idea of like the goal in, in this is still like to see God as opposed to like viewing the world through God. I think that's implicit, but I don't think it's as, as explicit as you made it. Yeah. I mean, we've been shaped and, and there's no shame in it. We've been shaped by consumerism. Oh yeah. In extreme ways. And so the idea is like there's a product out there somewhere. Yeah. And if you could get your hands on that product, yeah. It would just fill you up. And I don't know what it is like. Is it food? Because I can eat food until I'm sick and I I don't quite I'm not quite full. You know, is mm-hmm. it alcohol? Is it is it like a good piece of art beauty film poetry i don't know like there's this we've been we've bought into this lie that there's a product out there somewhere and it's it's incredibly dehumanizing that way of living because eventually in that way of seeing the world you yourself are also a product and you're hoping that somebody finds you to be a desirable product and that someone else sees you and says you look good you you feel good you're probably worth the money like what's the sacrifice i would have to make to to have you how much will it cost oh that sounds like good bang for my buck i would like to have you and then hopefully you are a cons- a, a product that guarantees con- customer satisfaction you know and so half of your energy goes into making sure you're a good enough product for the consumer <sighs> And the other half is making sure you consume the right product. Yeah. And so you end up being devoured and you end up devouring. And I think there's a a passage in Galatians that talks about devouring one another instead of, of releasing people from that and saying, there is no product that will satisfy me. And I certainly don't want to make this person that I'm attracted to or this person I'm drawn to into a product for me, the consumer to consume. Mm -hmm. And in the same way, I don't want to feel the pressure of being branded in a, in a way that satisfies the consumer. And so, I don't know, I guess, again, the pastor in me thinks that freedom from that consumerism is sort of what salvation means. Mm. I think we talked about this a little bit last semester in hermeneutics. And I remember Colin talking about the idea of like, how we even have this consumerist approach to prayer. And that was super striking to me because mm-hmm. I've definitely been in that, that area where it's like, Oh, I'm not focused enough while praying or I'm not this enough. And if I'm more this, then it's more likely that God will hear me. And it's so, so consumeristic. It's so dangerous. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The way I see it. And I hope that it's okay. I'm like on this podcast, like, am I talking too much? <laughs> I hope not. But um, I think in the Bible, in John, First John, I think it says that love casts out fear. Mm. And so when you're, you can't love something you're afraid of. Because when you're afraid of it, naturally, you're going to build self-defense mechanisms, right? You're going to put up a wall to keep that person out. You're going to be like, Mr. Cool or Mr. I don't care. And what I've learned, and even recently, like even literally in the last few months, I've had conflicts with my husband and with people in my church where the whole conflict 
uh, how do I talk about this? So for example, I'm having an argument with someone and we get face to face and we're going to have it out. We're just going to hash it out. The whole argument is centered around me telling you what you did wrong and you telling me what I did wrong. So I'm talking about you and you're talking about me. I'm like, you are judgmental. And they're like, well, you are hypocritical. Well, you are pressuring me too much. Well, you are two-faced. And you just go back and forth saying what's wrong. I'll tell you what's wrong with you and you tell me what's wrong with me. I'll tell you what you did wrong and what was wrong and immoral and sinful. And I'll tell you, you know, the only, and, and that can go on forever until you just hate each other. But the moment that transformation and reconciliation and love is a reality is when you talk about yourself. So instead of saying, you are judgmental, you say, I feel judged. I feel rejected. I feel like I'm inadequate and I'm not good enough. Mm. And that takes so much vulnerability. And that doesn't have anything to do with you. I could say like, you know... Actually, even just today, uh, David and I talked about a really difficult conflict we had like eight years ago that is just there. That's just like a memory. And something he said kind of triggered it. And, and he was like, well, where did you go? Like, I can tell that you're kind of in another world. And I was like, yeah, when you said that, it really reminded me of that fight we had, remember? And I started talking about it. And usually like once you start talking about this fight, once I start talking about the fight, David's defense would go up. Oh, I don't remember it that way or whatever. And then my defense would go up because you're dismissing me. And then you would just kind of shut each other down and then walk away. But instead it was like, yeah, I remember feeling unseen and I felt like I didn't have agency and I felt invisible. I felt unseen. I felt unheard, you know, and he was able to like stay present. And he's like, yeah, I remember feeling, feeling like you thought I was a monster or you thought I felt like I was a bad guy, like, like in just that vulnerability to say, I feel like this instead of you did this, you bad person. Um, and what, so, so you can't have a defense up at all to say, I felt this way. Mm-hmm. And that, and then what, like, what, like when you look across the table at this person who says, I felt rejected by you, I felt like you didn't think I was good enough. I don't know. It's really hard to hear those stories and not be like, what? I think you're fantastic. I think you're wonderful. I never would have wanted you to feel that way. I'm your biggest fan. Like there's something so healing in that. But if if he had said, I think you're a judgmental, critical, hypocritical, disingenuous nag. Oh yeah. Well, there's the door. Leave. Right. So to turn that conflict, like, like, um, so Walter Brueggemann has this bit that I think is just bloody brilliant, where he says, bringing pain to speech leads to marching, Mm. but pain not brought to speech leads to violence. Mm. And what he, what he means by that is you feel pain. Okay. This person hurt me, but you don't, you don't tell that person, I feel hurt. You tell that person, you're a bad person and you did a bad thing, right? That's what we do. So then that pain actually just forces a rift between you and that person. And and it forces you deeper into your loneliness and your isolation. Now imagine if you took that pain, I feel hurt, I feel rejected, and you brought it to speech. I feel hurt, I feel rejected. That leads to an actual healing. And interestingly, in our consumer world, 
uh, the empire, as Brueggemann would call it, wants wants your pain to be private because then the empire could make money off your pain. The empire could sell you a product that would make your pain go away. Mm-hmm. And interestingly, the church, when the church is co-opted by the empire, also doesn't want your pain. The church wants your pain to be private. And the way the church does that is turns your pain into guilt. It's your fault you're feeling pain because you did a bad thing or you made wrong choices or you don't have enough faith in Jesus. So that's your fault. Come back when you've dealt with your pain and you're ready to be happy. But in the Bible, more than 60% of the Psalms are lament Psalms and not a single one of them contains an admission of guilt. Hmm. They're all just saying, I feel pain. And that's it. Not, it's my fault I feel pain. I'm sorry about my pain. It's your fault I feel pain. It's just, I feel pain. And that pain leads to often other people feeling safe to say, I also feel pain. And someone else, I also feel pain. And then now it's a collective lament. It's a community lament. We feel this pain. Um, I can imagine adult singles in a church saying, I feel really unwelcome here as a single person because marriage is an idol on the altar and you're all worshiping it and you don't know how to participate in this act of worship. And you name that pain. Other single people in the church say, I feel it too. <laughs> I feel it too. I feel it too. And collectively the the group of adult singles say, I feel this pain that I'm not, I'm not able to participate in this religion where you worship marriage. It, that It's that pain. So, so if you come to the church and say, you guys are the worst, screw you guys. You're just a, a shitty church because you do this thing where you just worship marriage. That church is going to be like, whoa. And the, the leader of that church, no doubt. And the elders are going to be like, whoa, this person has issues. Like this feels really hard for us to handle. But instead of saying what you did wrong, you say, I feel this pain. Hmm. I don't feel attacked by you saying I feel pain. In fact, I feel drawn to you because I actually care about you and I don't want you to feel pain. And it actually brings people together. And so in a relationship, I think there's something really powerful about saying, I feel worthless when you act that way. And they say, oh, but I think you're great. You're worth so much. Whereas I feel like you're a bad person is going to send them running. And I think kind of tying it back to that idealization of relationships it's kind of easy for people, I don't know, at least for me, and I think I can speak for some type fours, to think about relationships and be like, yeah, you know, they say it might be hard, but like, it'll be more fulfilling than it will be hard. And if it's hard, we'll get through it. And like, it's still the perfect thing that I want. Without realizing that, honestly, like, it's going to be really, really hard sometimes. And Having, if you want children, having children, while that may seem like a magical, perfect thing, it's also going to be really hard. And sex is not going to be this perfect, imaginary, like um, fantastic experience that you'll get to enjoy every single time. It's also going to be really hard. And it's okay that it's hard. In fact, it's probably good that these these things are hard. But it's easy to romanticize even the hard things and be like, oh, yeah, but like it'll it'll just make the the story better. It'll make it more romantic. But it will like it will suck in the moment. Like there will be times where it just sucks. Oh yeah, like and that's okay. You know, when you go to a wedding, you hear these vows. They're like, for better or for worse, in sickness <laughs> and 
for, in, for richer or for poorer. Like they kind of say mm-hmm. like when life is great and when life sucks, I will love you. And then you think, okay, now you've done the work. Finally, you dated, you got engaged, you planned a wedding, you filled out the paperwork. <laughs> now we've done mm-hmm. it. We're married. And I'm like, now? Now? Like that was that was practice. Now it's the game. Now one of you gets sick. One of you loses their job. One of you knows what they want to do with a career and the other one doesn't know yet. One of you apparently had a huge student loan that you didn't know about or whatever, whatever. And it's like, well, now you do that work. Mm-hmm. And and I think it's sad though, because I feel like I feel a lot of compassion for um, people in the church who aren't married because, because of COVID, like one mm. of the things I've come to value as a pastor that I took for granted before was ceremony and ritual. Because I think we used to think the whole point of church was like a really mm. inspiring worship set and uh, inspiring sermon. But guess what we discovered? You don't need to go to church for those things. There's a million podcasts and a million albums. And if you just wanted an inspiring worship set and a good sermon, you don't have to leave your own bedroom. Um, so what can you offer the world as a pastor or as a church when they already have access to all the other good music and good sermons? Well, what about ceremony? Mm. And the, but, but sadly, the only ceremonies that are normative is when you get married, when you have kids and when you die. (laughs) So you don't get a ceremony until you're married. And, and so I I don't know, I think it's really sad because then then you just long, because a ceremony is like a rite of passage. It's a a way of being welcomed into community. It's a way of marking a transition, essentially any transition Hmm. um, should, I, I think would be more meaningful if there was a ceremony. And I, 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 I don't know. I think it's really frustrating. It must be really frustrating to feel like you're not fully human until you get married. And then once you're married, you're not fully human until you have kids. Um, and there's a lot of people who are married with kids who, I don't know, are disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> I did all the things and now what? Yeah. And that's why some couples have kids. It's like, we've done this. Now what? Yeah. Do we need kids to fill the void? And then they have kids and they're like, oh, this didn't fill the void that I was hoping it would. Oh, yeah. It's all consumerism. The the void is just filled with exhaustion. Yeah, I think there's a script you're supposed to follow. Like you have to go to Bible college, get a degree, then get married and get an apartment and then get a dog mm. and then get a starter house and then have a kid and then get your real house mm. and then have a couple more kids. And then you've just, you've done it. You've achieved it. You're there. And for some Christian folks, they have that before they're like 28 years old. And it's like, well, then what? What? And and so there's this script and it's kind of like written into our consciousness that that's the script. And so if your life doesn't fit the script, there's like this impending sense of doom that you've messed it all up. Like you're 23 years old and you've messed it all up. Yeah. Um, and I think it's interesting that, like, in the Bible, all of the the characters that made change in the world were characters who didn't follow the script. Mm. And the script is a, a huge pressure. And I think of that especially, like, as a woman 
there's this mm. really weird thing that culture does where we think that like you have a biological clock and so if you want to be a mother you really got to get this show on the road because by the time you're 30 it gets super dangerous to have kids and you, you know you really just if if you're 28 and you're still single you just take what you can get and and i don't know if mm. you, you don't quite relate to that but I remember finding it quite revolutionary when I discovered that those studies that say women ought to have all the babies they plan to have before they're 35 were studies done in the 1700s <laughs> when women were having 9, 10, 11 children. And those studies failed to acknowledge that the women who were having children after 35 were having their 12th, 13th, 15th child. And so there are complications and they thought it's because they're over 35, not because they're on baby number 10. And so the studies being shown today say there's actually no risk, like, like no risk whatsoever in having children in like your late thirties and even in your mid early late forties, that as long as you're, you know, menstruating, you're able to have healthy children. And so that pressure you feel at 28, that if you haven't been married by now, you've failed, is like, no, you still have like another 20 years. You have time. And there's this scarcity mindset. It's like, if I don't get married in the next three years, I've ruined my life. Instead of like releasing your own self from that debt, that expectation, mm. forgive mm. yourself. That, you know, they're saying that nowadays, when they, when, when sociologists track, the time in one's life that they make permanent decisions compared to like 60 years ago, it's, it's a huge difference. Like 60 years ago, you were married by 18, you had a career by 20, you owned a house by 25. And so they created these categories for when you become an adult, Right. you know, you're a teenager at 13, you're an adult at 18, and then you're like middle age by like what, 45 and you're old by 60. And they're saying, well, now actually, when we look at when people actually make big decisions, we should say you're a teenager until you're 30 because the, the most people don't make start making permanent decisions, like what your career is going to be, who you're going to marry, where you're going to live until they're 30. And then you actually just start building your career and getting into your career and you're probably not middle age until you're like 65 and then you're not really old because we can, with, with all of our technology and whatnot, you, you can potentially, like barring severe circumstance, live quite a long time. So you're, you're middle age at like 65 and then you're not really old until you're like 85. <laughs> and so, but the pressure, and I feel like that pressure is way worse in the church. And that's in part due to purity culture, because not only do you have the pressure to like, in, in like five years from like 18 to 25, you have to like get a degree pick a career and have enough money in the bank to like make all these big decisions. And then you can't have sex <laughs> in that <laughs> entire time until you get married. So all of those things just, it's kind of a crash course. I mean, a, a, a collision waiting to happen of pressure and despair. And so yeah. I find it, it, it can be a gift to be like, release yourself from this debt that you've put yourself in, or you've imagined that society or the church has put you in. You have so much time to mm. explore and ask questions and be curious. Yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I, I have to keep reminding myself that because I mean, in like 
what, three months now, I graduate. And then it's it's so weird because, I mean, I did like elementary, high school. I had a year off. And then for the past five years, my entire life has been like structured around Ambrose. And mm-hmm. there's like this kind of existential void after graduation mm-hmm. where like, I know what I'm doing right now and I'll get my degree and I have no idea what life looks like after that. Um, mm. <laughs> but yeah. And, and, and I, I think there is this weird pressure to be successful and it's like, I'm 23. I don't need to be successful yet. Like That's all right. of the creators I follow didn't get big until like thirties, forties, like this is fine. Um, That's right. But yeah, it's just it's this weird like existential like what happens after grad? Are you going to be like successful, have a house, et cetera, all these things? It's like, no, mm-hmm. I don't need to do that. I can figure that. Plus it's 2020, 2021. No one's planning right. anything. Yeah, no. You can't. Just just wait until you're actually like in that phase though. And you're yeah. like a year out a year out from graduating and almost every single one of your friends is in either a serious long-term relationship where marriage is on the horizon or they're already married. That's and the so other you piece. have like, you have like one single friend. Mm-hmm. Is that me? And so <laughs> I'm speaking hypothetically, but like <laughs> <laughs> every person I know that got married in the four years that I was doing my bachelor's at Ambrose. So I graduated with my bachelor's in 2009. Every single couple that I know that got married between 2005 and 2009 is now divorced. Oh, Jesus. Everyone. And it's really interesting seeing the divorced, the people who are divorced be friends with the people who never got married. Mm. Mm. There's like almost a forgiveness. Like the people that got married are a little bit, maybe self-righteous. Like I've achieved something. (laughs) I'm more attractive Mm. than you or I'm just a better person. I have less baggage than you or I'm more assertive and outgoing. I'm a better biblical man than you. Um, Jesus, and then they get divorced and they're there with you and they're like yeah i thought i found a product <laughs> that would satisfy mm. the consumer mm. and yeah. i didn't and i don't know there's a there's kind of a a tragic like i didn't get married during my degree and i was a i got a bachelor's of theology and this is a true story and after if you were a graduating theology student at ambrose you got to go for dinner at the prof's house who was the head, the program head. Um, and at that time in 2009, it was Bernie Vandewell. Nice. And so I got to go for dinner at his house. And it was a pretty nice. big deal. There were probably like 14 graduating theology students. And I was the only woman. And I don't think it's because like Ambrose was sexist or anything. I mean, that's a whole other conversation. hundred <laughs> percent it was, but I don't think that's the, only, the reason I was the only woman that was graduating with a theology degree. But that year I happened to be the only woman. And so there was like, 14 maybe 12 guys at this dinner and most of them had wives or girlfriends and then i was the woman with the degree and i remember that um the professors who were there and their wives that were there were kind of like mingling with the girlfriends and then the professors were mingling with the theology students and i was in this liminal space because i didn't want to talk about football in the kitchen with the men but i didn't really know how to talk about babies and whatnot with the women and i remember just kind of zoning out, staring at the perfectly groomed vacuum lines in the carpet, wondering what my life would be. And <laughs> um, a woman, uh, one of the 
women who were married to one of the professors. I don't know. Like no one there was bad. Like everyone there was wonderful. But they were like, oh, what's your name? I was like, oh, my name's Michaela. Oh, that's nice. And what do you do? And I was like, I am a theology student at Ambrose as per the event (laughs) that I am attending. And they were like, oh, sorry, I just hadn't, like, I hadn't assumed that. Like, I didn't have an imagination for that. Mm. And I just remember feeling extremely lonely at that event because I didn't, I didn't really fit the script. Like, and I think a lot of, a lot of people feel that way all the time. You know, like you might think I'm 23 and I'm not, I don't have a a serious relationship and I don't really know what I'm going to do after I graduate. And I don't even know where I'm going to live in a year or where my next paycheck might come from. But I bet you, if you look at like the people you respect the most, even like the professors you respect the most at Ambrose, they feel the exact same way. Uh, Like I should be farther ahead than I am right now. And I should know what I'm going to do. And like, I live in a rental in Boness. (laughs) (laughs) I live, my lease is month to month. I am in a, a, a bedroom in my basement right now. And if you could see, you would assume I'm being held hostage because it's, chaotic and messy and nothing makes sense and i don't know the plan like i don't know like we're we're all pretending that we have it all figured out and imposter syndrome is so real oh so real and so this is why i go back to forgiveness is like Mm -hmm. i suspect that i'm in debt to everyone like everyone thinks i should be more than i am and so i'm constantly like repenting of this sin crawling on my knees like i'm failing and forgiveness is like you are good and you are enough and today is just a day and the, the space you occupy on this day is good mm. and I suspect that releasing yourself and releasing other people is probably a really good place to enter into a relationship <laughs> better than the place of like that anxiety and that expectation You know, one thing that I was thinking when we uh, were talking about the commodification of relationships, we also live in a society where, especially now, the only way you're getting into a relationship is through like a dating app right. where it's literally like you're you're going through and choosing who you think is the most attractive and then swiping. It's literally like commodification or maybe your friend sets you up with someone. Maybe if you're lucky, mm-hmm. and then that's other than random like bar meetups. How do you meet people? Yeah, as as a single person who's out of like school, I should say. And I I wonder if that's where like some of the alienation factor I was talking about comes from because there's a love for him. Like I have, I'm in no frame to like meet people, and uh, again, I'm like, if I'm going to start a relationship, I want it to be with someone I have some sort of connection to but I have no space to make connections with anybody right now. So what does that even mean? I guess I just will not try to not think about it because mm-hmm. yeah. Well, I, I suspect that, and I don't know, I don't know what that's like. And so I, I have compassion, but I, <laughs> but I think you either have to name, bring, bring your pain to speech. Mm. I would like mm. to be in a relationship. I feel lonely and just be aware of that, that sense of longing and desire and like that that's a genuine 
hurt. And, and, and just being aware of that feeling can be healing. Like you're just naming that and you might be going about your day and then be like, oh, oh, I'm having that thought again that I wish I had a partner. I, I, oh, there's that feeling again. I'm lonely. And you observe and you notice that feeling. And practicing like naming that can actually be uh, energizing and mobilizing because you're aware of that and you become aware of how often you have that feeling. And that might move you to say, maybe be a little more, I don't want to say like assertive on a dating app. <laughs> but I mean mm. like, it brings you out instead of mm. from that hiding place. Cause you're ashamed that you have that feeling and that feeling right. and vulnerable. So you put up a wall and be like, I don't give a shit. I don't care. <laughs> or, and this is a totally different side is say, I'm actually perfectly content being single right now. And there's genuinely nobody that I'm interested in. And I feel a lot of pressure and a lot of shame. Like I'm supposed to feel differently. But the reality is I don't. And you name that and say, I'm fine in the year of our Lord 2020 in a pandemic with just only having to take care of my own crap right now and not have to do right? someone else's. Yeah. And you just name that and be like, you know what, church, stay in your lane. Mm. <laughs> you don't need to tell me that it's wrong that I'm single right now. When I've been following your Instagram, I know that none of you are happy either. <laughs> Like there's a Oof. sense of either naming the desire to be in a relationship and naming the loneliness or naming the fact that you feel like you've been placed into a debt and you mm. don't want to pay. And so it's it's the simple act of like bringing the pain to speech, either the pain of loneliness or the pain of the sense of failure that you're not living up to everyone else's pressure. Mm. And when you can figure out which one it is, I think you could build your next steps well around that i'm lonely and i want to be in a relationship and then maybe there is someone who's a little bit available or interested in you and you can just be open and say oh well let's hang out yeah and just see because i guarantee you the person that you find now at 23 even if you date and get married will not even be close to that same person when you wake up to them and wake up beside them in 10 years yeah like you have no idea who oh, you yeah. just I don't know, like the person I was when I was um, <laughs> 2009 to the person I am now, like mm -hmm. David was this super conservative Christian guy that had never said a <laughs> swear word. And one time we were hanging out and I like pretended to like tickle him. And then he tickled me and I said, damn it. Well, he, while I was laughing and he was so offended by the word, damn it, that he got up and left my house and drove home and didn't talk to me for two days. Oh my God. And I look at him now. <laughs> like, Nice. where did that person go uh but that's just who he was he just he just grew up in this kind of very 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 conservative world and you would never swear he would never had a drink he'd never watched a movie with nudity or swearing and i just thought because i had this like sinful past that this was the perfect christian man and if he you know he would bring me into this perfect christian light and i don't know he tried to be a pastor and he hated it and then started <laughs> social work and started seeing some of the underbelly of society and was like, oh yeah, life is really hard and we're all doing our best. And he just got more kind of edgy and rough and real. And mm. I don't know, like, it's just that like the person that you marry is not a person that you would recognize in 10 years. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I look at even myself like two years ago 
and I don't recognize that person. I look at myself like two years before then and I hate that person. Um, <laughs> like, yeah, totally. Also, the more you talk about David, the more I'm like, I feel like I need to like hang out with David more. Because... Oh yeah, you 100% do. He's fantastic. And I think both of you actually in different ways would really get along well with him. I think the first conversation I remember having with him, I may have had one like the first time I went to Awaken, but when I went to like the potluck, I randomly go talking to him. I think about like Dostoevsky and James Joyce and just Dostoevsky and Tolstoy are his favorite things to talk about. Like, I don't know how it came up. And then it was only after that. I was like, Oh, that's, that's like David, David. That's like Michaela's husband. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, David very much likes to be uh, like devil's advocate, which I think is his Enneagram four. Like if he was in a room of people that were staunchly conservative Christians, he would be like, he would want to talk about LGBTQ or climate change. Like he would just need to make sure everybody there knew that he was not aligned with their way of thinking, that he was an individual and he had intelligent thoughts and he wasn't dictated. Like he, he, he wasn't interested in like fitting in. But then if he was in a room of like really progressive feminist people, he'd be like, well, you know, I think tradition has a place. (laughs) And in pre-modern societies. And there would be like, I really love it about him. I mean, there's been times where I'm like, the devil has enough advocates, David. You you (laughs) just sit and and just be curious and be yourself. But uh, it's actually really beautiful that he's like, uh, I'm not going to go with the flow. I'm not going to conform. One thing that David's taught me is that you need, um, so the, the the metaphor that he uses is when you're trying to start a fire. I don't know if you've ever tried to make a fire like outdoors when it was like windy. Mm. This is, in order for a flame to be healthy and sustainable, the flame needs ex- enclosure, like a safe little space without wind. But if you suffocate it and there's no oxygen, then it also won't start. So it needs enclosure, Mm -hmm. but it also needs exposure Mm. to the air. And that's when you get the perfect balance between enclosure and exposure, you can make a great fire. So the human heart needs Mm. enclosure, a sense of security and attachment and safety. But you don't want to be in a prison cell. (laughs) Like you don't want to be bound to like COVID-19 has taught us that like your home is lovely until you're trapped inside of it. (laughs) Mm. Too much enclosure is going to put the fire out. You also need adventure and risk and vulnerability. You need a home and you need a, a roam, like an adventure. You need risk and like, you need a healthy amount of fear and what's going to happen. Like the wild and the home and so it's uh, interesting that we often think a, a partner, a girlfriend, a boyfriend will be home. I'll mm. feel safe. I'll feel secure. But that person, um, I think in a, in a really healthy relationship could simultaneously be a home for you and a wild, terrifying adventure. Mm. I think with that metaphor, like what you talked about with the importance of like speaking things as well as kind of what we mentioned with like the capitalist system and like a lot of the evangelical church and how it often thrives on silence and Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i don't know i i've just 
I've experienced so much in myself because I am such an introspective person that that can be a great blessing and it can also be a great curse because you just get so locked in your head and your own like cycles of thinking and it just drags you downward and yeah that that need to to be exposed to um like speak things and be open with things and yeah just you can't just huddle up in your own tiny box because you'll just suffocate yourself yeah yeah totally you you'll you'll just build up your defense so high that you put out the flame <laughs> yeah yeah hmm. you have to risk the unknown or if i would, was speaking to an enneagram for like risk the mundane <laughs> hmm. yeah yeah i guess like maybe i was debating between two different routes either like Glendon, why don't you tell us one of your stories where you fantasized about someone and it didn't work out and then I can do my own. But then like that kind of goes back to previously in the podcast. And I feel like we're past that. Or we go to down the route of like, what do we practically do now moving forward? I do. I mean, I do have like, I, I, was, I thought of a story of reconciliation that I've probably shared on this podcast before, but maybe I haven't. We'll, we'll assume that I haven't because I think of, if anything, it's developed since then. Because I think you were talking, Nikayla, about um, arguments and about coming at it, not with like, you did this, you did this, you did this, but like, I felt this. I am like contextualizing experience like that. And I I thought of um, my one, like, it, it's weird to call them an ex because at this point we're just friends. And so it's like, weird to think that we dated at some point but like we had this i mean we dated in high school and had the super messy breakup where we just didn't talk to each other for like a full year and a half or so mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. at first I, I i remember at first it was like anger and then it turned into like very sharp guilt and eventually i began to reconcile it within myself and as i was doing that i realized i need to reach out to this person um Mm. and i remember that phone call being so much like hey you did all of these things as much as it was like hey i've sat back and thought about that here are the things that i did i apologize and then they were able to apologize as well and even after that we didn't talk for like Mm -hmm. i think another year or so before we started to just open up and become friends again but also with that be very honest and we've had like random sessions where it's like these are the things that happened and mm-hmm. it sucked but we're we've grown and we're different people and mm-hmm. we are adults now and so we're able to come back to this friendship as a friendship and kind of yeah a lot a lot in the same way just be like hey here's what happened here's what I, here's how i felt about it and mm-hmm. it, it it's weird like it's such a it's such a life-giving friendship now where in the middle of all that i was i i definitely remember being at a point where like i have killed this friendship nothing's happening with this any anymore um mm-hmm. and now this is like one of the people that i talk to the most in my life it's so strange but glendon that's very powerful you a lot of people aren't able to recover a friendship after a relationship falls out and I sense there's an 
an intuition you had that drew you towards reconciliation and connection that Mm. maybe you don't see how profound that is, but it's very profound. And I'm, I appreciate that greatly about you. And, and it's tough because in, in Western Christianity, we're taught never to trust our intuition and our instincts. Mm. <laughs> and I think there's a there's a knowledge, um, a wisdom that you have intrinsically. And to, to learn to trust that is a, a very powerful discipline. And it can be really self-destructive to constantly doubt and question yourself. Mm. So I'm, I'm really impressed that you were like, I need to connect with this person and say, hey, let's clear this air or let's mend this bridge a little bit and and then you were able to like recover a solid genuine friendship is is incredible and to think that there could be people out there who would say well you're not married so what could you possibly have to offer the world in terms of how to be in relationship kind of breaks my heart a little bit because i think (laughs) here's a person that was in a relationship was vulnerable was hurt and was able to recover a friendship you probably know more about the human heart and human relationship than 85% of the married people in your church. Mm. You are wise and, and your experience is good and you have a lot of good to offer the world. And, and, and the thought that the church would want you to believe that you're missing out on something could maybe be like a big lie. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Amen to that. <laughs> I feel like, I just want to jump in and say I think Emerson is like the ultimate type four because he talks about how if you don't listen to your intuition, if you don't listen to yourself, your own internal virtue, your soul, then not only are you just, well, conforming and and that's just plainly a waste of time, but you're depriving everyone else of God, the God in you. And so I, I don't know, it just came to mind when Nikayla was talking about listening to your intuition, how the Western churches demonize that, which they absolutely shouldn't have. And Emerson speaks out strongly against that. So just want to point that out. Now back to Nikayla, what Nikayla is about to say. There's a, um, uh, Willie Jennings has, Dr. Willie Jennings has a commentary on the book of Acts. And you know that story in Acts chapter five with Ananias and Sapphira? Yes. It's a weird story because you got a a husband is like, I don't want to give the church all my money, which 99%, 99 99.999% of us are like, yes, that's good. No one wants to give all their money to the church. And he's like, here's all my money. And then the church is like, you're lying. It's only part of your money. And then he drops dead. And then they summon his wife and they're like, is this all the money? And she lies and says, well, you know, what did my husband say? I stand by my husband. Whatever he said is true. And then she drops dead. And a lot of people have like waxed eloquently about like, you shouldn't lie to the church or you die. And I'm like, wait, can we go back to that part where you just said that you can't lie to the church or you die? <laughs> that's, that's dark. Can we just, that, that, that's abusive. Okay. Um, and Willie Jennings has a take on that story that blows my mind. And I would just say anyone in the world should just get the Acts commentary by Willie Jennings and read Acts chapter five. So I, I don't have to go into it, but he talks about um, like the place of marriage in the church. And that most churches, um, all of the resources of the church go into supporting marriage and married people and families. Like the budget is into Sunday school and youth and children's men and all of it is for married people. And so a marriage is an energy sucking vortex in the church. (laughs) That's his language, literally. (laughs) And 
story of Ananias and Sapphira is about placing marriage in in the proper context that like the community of Jesus uh, must confront. So this is a direct quote from Willie Jennings. He says, the community of Jesus must confront the couple, whether heterosexual or homosexual, with a new truth. You belong to us. We do not belong to you. And the idea is like a marriage when done well, like a covenanting, self-emptying love where two people practice vulnerability, practice Mm. facing their fears, practice being seen for the truly simultaneously shitty and magical person that they are. (laughs) That experience should flow out into the church and Mm. just like bless the church. Like we know love and there is enough, there is enough, there is enough and just flow in. But instead the church sucks the energy and the resources away. And that Ananias and Sapphira's first allegiance was to the marriage and they didn't really need the church, but the church needed them. Mm. And so they thought we could give you some of our money. But the idea is that like our allegiance to one another is stronger than our allegiance to you. And, and, and that, they kind of came as individuals and I don't know, like their posture before the church was that like the church serves us. We don't serve the church. And I think that the fact that there's this story in Acts five is really radical that the Western church has never fully considered the gravity of that story, Hmm. because if it did, I think it would have a, a real humility and a real sense that, yeah, the church doesn't belong to marriage. Like the goal of discipleship isn't finding a spouse. Right. If finding a spouse might uh, be a part of your discipleship, lovely. But it, it's just gotten really out of hand in the West. And so then you've kind of created these like spiritual orphans who are like, what do I do? It's Valentine's Day and I'm alone. <laughs> uh, I think. 80% of the couples in the church are also alone on Valentine's day, <laughs> but we're not allowed Oof. to talk about that because the empire wants our pain to be kept private. I mean, I look at my peers who are getting married at like 20, 21, 22, et cetera. Like mm-hmm. I, I wonder if they've learned the virtue of listening to themselves yet. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, this is, this is something, especially I, where I, I look at like freshman relationships and they just make me so frustrated. Um, and especially an upperclassman who starts a relationship with a freshman, which I've only seen work once um, because so often I look at it and it, it seems like, I mean, your freshman year in university, especially is such a growing experience because you are learning how you fit into this community, how you study, how you do all these different things. And like, so often I see people in that position where they can really like learn about themselves and learn about the people around them. And then they get into a relationship in their first year and they disappear from the community and they're never seen again. And it makes me so sad every single time because I'm like, I don't know if you actually went through that experience. I don't know if you learned about yourself, about how Mm -hmm. you engage with community, about how you engage with school. I think you just learned how to be in this relationship. And then all but one time, that relationship falls apart within a year or so. And it's like, what have you just lost? Yeah. Oh yeah. The, that's the huge work of being married is convincing your spouse that, that, that like David convincing me that he could not meet all of my needs. And I actually needed a whole big community outside of him 
<laughs> and me convincing him that I actually can't meet all of your needs. Like, I don't want to watch sports with you. <laughs> I don't care about talking about Nietzsche with you. I, I just don't. I don't even like some of the same food you like. I think you should go out with your friends. And for me to learn who his friends were in the right context, and <laughs> even sometimes, like, I know this isn't great to admit, but I'd be like, yeah, hey, text his friend, like his really good friend, Jeremiah, and be like, I am not able to connect with David on the level that he needs right now. I don't know if you're available, but I'm sure David would love to go for a walk and like go for a pint or something. And him like, yeah, I'm free. I'd love that. And then text David. <laughs> it's his way of like, I can't do all the things. I can't meet all the needs. I'm not, I don't complete you. A whole community mm. has to carry that in. And, and so, yeah, totally. When you're in college and you get a friend, a really close friend who gets into a relationship and then that friend kind of like yeets you and all your, all of you. It's like, what? Good luck in five years. (laughs) See, maybe, maybe I'll offer a little bit of pushback here. Play my type four role um, (laughs) and say that. I don't know if I know a single married couple that didn't pull away from what I considered to be like our community, mm. um, but they joined other communities. Mm. Um, mm. So it's like, it, I guess I, I guess what I'm trying to say is just because they might not be a part of your community anymore doesn't mean they haven't found other communities. Interesting. Mm-hmm. And maybe I'm telling that to myself more than anyone else. Aww. Yeah. But like, for the vast majority, and I'm not just speaking like friends from Ambrose, I'm talking about mm. friends from high school as well. Um, mm. Once you end up in either a serious relationship or married, things change and you just either end up being busier, yeah. you end up being uh, moving to a different stage of life, you end up uh, perhaps moving away or whatever, whatnot. Um, things change and that doesn't, usually they will find more other perhaps more accessible more tangible community than they would have had otherwise Mm. um so like i get what glendon's saying in that specifically in the ambrose context of living on res someone starts dating someone else and they pull back and just spend all their time with that person Mm -hmm. um i get that but at the same time it just seems to be that when you do become when you you do start to become more committed to a relationship your community changes and that's okay um even if it might mean that some people are like left behind and become friends for like the kind of people you invite over every few months to catch up or that are in town kind of thing that's okay too and it just means the community is changing Mm -hmm. it doesn't necessarily mean that like being married means ditching your community yeah or ditching community in general kind of thing and i I don't I didn't want to create that sense where, like, if you if you leave me, you're a bad relationship. I no, hate you. no. Um, but I I do think there's a trend, especially like with freshman relationships specifically. Like, the older you get, the more it's kind of like do what you want. But like freshman relationships, again, I've only seen one where it started and like continued and didn't fall apart within a year or so. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think there's something about that year especially but again i think there is a virtue in like getting to know yourself before entering into a relationship you can still Mm -hmm. do that once you're in a relationship it's just harder and takes more time i imagine yeah for sure for sure i totally get what you're saying man 
But I am going to offer a little bit of pushback in post, which is kind of unfair because Gluttony can't respond. But I think the point he was trying to make is that in your freshman year, you should be focused on forming your friendships and community rather than focusing on dating someone when it's not going to work out. And, like, I get that. I think he's right to some extent. But I also think there is value in learning to date early on. Um, I don't think, and I don't think Glendon believes this either, that it's a just a pointless, meaningless experience to date someone in your first year if you're just going to break up. I don't think you need to date with the intention of marrying. You can date with the intention of just dating and getting to know someone and getting to know how to be in a relationship. And I know Glendon agrees with that. I just don't want it to come across as like, oh, don't date in your freshman year because it's bound to fail. Because that's a very evangelical um, notion of purpo- the, the purpose of dating, which, um, you know, Joshua Harris has kind of come out and denounced after he wrote that book. So, you don't need to date to marry. It's okay. That's that's my point. You can date for fun in your freshman year, and that's okay. But also, focus on your community. Have friends. F- f- learn to experience yourself and find yourself in ways that you hadn't before. And that can be with another person in a relationship or with your community in a more general context, like Glenda was saying. That's all I want to clarify. But you, as a single person, you're allowed to acknowledge that you consented to a friendship with your friend, but you oh, didn't yeah. necessarily consent to a friendship with your friend's new partner. Yeah. Um, and I don't like mm-hmm. my, my closest example is like my parents divorced and remarried when I was like 16 to 25. Mm-hmm. And I remember like the weird mysterious experience that is. Cause I'm like, you fell in love with this person, mom and dad, and you decided to marry them, but I didn't decide to marry them. And so it's actually in, interesting to be like i don't care about your new spouse as much as you do Hmm. and it's okay that you care about them as much as you do but it's not okay for you to expect me to care about them as much as you do Mm -hmm. and so you can have a friend that gets a a partner that this your friend is very excited about and you have to kind of bless them in that i love that you are so excited about that person but i'm not as excited about that person as you are Mm -hmm. And I hope that you're able to still have a connection with me without putting me in a debt where you expect me to be as stoked for your person as you are. Mm. Like your person's great. That's fine. But the kind of friendship I have with you is way more interesting interesting to me than the kind of friendship I'm going to have with your new person. And I think that if you are the person that's getting into a relationship, you kind of have to expect like release your friends from that debt of like hey i'm still your friend and i might not be as available to hang out as i was before because i have this really new exciting person in my life Mm. but it's i'm not gonna expect you to get as stoked for my person as you are and you Mm. know like when david and i were dating he's like do you want to go to sam's house we're all gonna play warcraft and because (laughs) i was a little bit insecure for a few times i was like yeah that sounds great and I would go to his house and sit there and watch the guys play Warcraft. And then eventually I was like, I have an idea. Why don't you go to your friend's house and play Warcraft? And I will do something else because that's not fun for me. But I'm not going to make mm. you feel really shitty because you're going to see your friends. I'm like, actually, that's great. You should definitely do that. And I'm aware of yeah. the fact that I don't care about doing that. And that's okay. I don't feel rejected. Mm. You don't have to pick choose between me and that person you can have both i'm gonna go do something else and i'll see you tomorrow night or something yeah i think like kind of in a roundabout way i remember was it my first year i don't remember who did it but somebody spoke at an a live about like 
like body of Christ, fruits of the spirit, which like mm. very typical sort of sermon. But I remember him framing it in a really specific way that I'd never thought about it, even though it's so obvious where it's like to get to fulfill your calling, your mission, whatever you will need other fruit or other parts of the body. Like you will need other yeah, like other parts in the body, uh, people with different gifts mm-hmm. than you, which is so mm-hmm. obvious, but we don't think about it that way. We think about calling in such a like single-minded, like I'll go and do this. Um, and I think that works really well in kind of this conversation too, where like, I think especially in the church, we frame uh, relationships and marriage as kind of like, we will support you, but we will sort of like stand over here and applaud and hope that you do well. Um, but but I like that idea of relationship and like especially marriage being kind of a more commutative event, which sounds really mm-hmm. weird when you frame it like that. But <laughs> I think it mm-hmm. makes sense where like, mm-hmm. yeah, people, yeah. Yeah, no. It's Can wise. you restate that? Sure. I mean, I guess just thinking about the idea of like, your 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 partner your spouse isn't going to fulfill everything in your life and they shouldn't be expected to fulfill everything in your life that's why you have friends that's why you have communities etc so rather rather yeah rather than seeing marriage as sort of like again a commodity like you do this and then you're fulfilled and then okay these two people are together let's go and try to match other people up but like if we as a church continue to support, I don't know, support couples in that way where it's like, I don't know, you don't, you don't need to rely on each other to do everything. Like you have other people around you. I'm also single. So maybe, maybe that's already a thing that happens a lot, but. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think I get what you're saying. Basically, if you're married, it doesn't mean you just like have to do everything yourselves. You have people around you that can help. In Valentine's Day 2022, you guys should do a, in, uh, an episode about polyamory. That would be very interesting. Oh, I mean, I'm all for it. Noah, Noah's going to start a polycule. <laughs> Wait, excuse me? You're going to start a polycule. It's going to happen. Is that a term? Yeah. that It's like a shared living space where like a, a big polyamorous oh, a cult, relationship. Like a cult. No. Cults are different. Polycules consent. I mean, oh, oh, yeah. Wait, cult is also consent in some way, depending on the cult. I don't know. There's a lot of power imbalance in the cult. Oh, sure. But maybe I'm not. Yeah, okay. Let's let's take the cult conversation. (laughs) Anyway, fun fact. In the latest season of The Expanse, there's a polycule spaceship and it's super fun. Anyway, I'm all for polyamorous relationships, though. I just, when you said a big house full of people doing it, I kind of pictured more of a cult, but, like, I'm okay no, with no. it. No, uh, uh, I mean, I don't know what the numbers would be, but a polycule is, like, you get, like, five or six people, and they're just all in a big polyamorous relationship. I wonder how that goes. I mean, I imagine you need a lot of trust and a lot of, like, conversation and openness. Yeah, I guess, like, what if two two start with each other more than the others? And then, like, do you break up the... There's just so much, like, I don't know. 
I have a sibling in a polyamorous relationship, so you Ooh. can just host her on your episode that time because I wouldn't know what to say as much. Yeah. Because I'm, mm. I'm a pretty big fan of monogamy <laughs> in that it's a lot of work to love one person well. I don't know how you do it with a group, but it's interesting. My, my, my sense is like I have a whole bunch of friends that meet different needs in me and, and, and pull out different parts of myself. And mm. I love the friends I go hiking with and the friends I like talking about theology with and the friends I like talking about poetry with or whatever, but, but I don't need to sleep with them all. <laughs> so that's kind of where I'm like, I really am a huge fan of intentional community. And so like when Dave and I got married, we started a community house. So we never actually, right. lived alone. we never lived alone. Like just the two of us as a married couple until like eight years into our marriage. Um, and it was really weird when we did. Like we, we, we weren't actually ever alone because we had two kids at that point. But um, so I'm like a huge fan of intentional community. Like I've, I've never really lived the like suburb married couple life, um, which, you know, most people do. But that's where I kind of, my sister and I debate about polyamory because I'm like, I believe in all of the things you're saying. I just don't want to sleep with all the people <laughs> but i guess i'm maybe old and irrelevant so i don't know yeah i uh, i don't know but i think that's definitely a topic to discuss on a future episode of the podcast but for now uh to kind of wrap this up what's like a general like theme or a general conclusion we can come to like what 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 is something that we can wrap this in a bow with what is the bow the bow is that things are more complicated than we think i i could just if i were to summarize some of the highlights of connecting with the two of you wonderful wise brilliant people is that you're not incomplete and you're not a product that you need to make good enough for your potential consumer <laughs> you are a full human being with uh, a biology uh, a biography i should say sorry a biography you have a story you have a whole uh system that you're a part of and, and it's really important and i mm. i think you can have a full life now mm. and not be waiting um to start your life when you get the right mm. product mm. but you mm. your life is happening right now yeah yeah i think there's a sense where it's like you should not be looking for fullness. And also you are already full. Mm -hmm. mm. And also simultaneously not full. <laughs> right. And that won't change when you're in a relationship. And that's part of the beauty and the terror yeah. of it all. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, that's exactly it. And then like, it's okay. Regardless of where you're at in your life. Like you are, you are probably doing okay. Mm -hmm. Like, you don't need to be at a certain place at a certain time because someone tells you so. Yeah. This isn't like elementary school. Yeah. You have freedom and that means you have freedom to choose when, where, and what happens. And you don't need to follow someone's guidelines or deadlines or schedules mm -hmm. um, in order to find that you'll probably never be happy in the way you expect. Mm -hmm. yeah and nothing, nothing will fulfill your hat and like nothing will solve the problem yeah you're doing and, okay yeah and your your happiness your fulfillment isn't going to necessarily look like 
other people's happiness or fulfillment or schedule or 10 step plan. And also it shouldn't need to That's right. kind of transitioning from there because we haven't done recommendations in a long time. And I, I feel like I would be remiss if I came on this podcast and didn't at least mention uh, Grace Semler Baldridge's new album. <laughs> Thank you, Glendon. Because um, her album that just came out, she is a, I, I, I don't remember specifically what she identifies with, but she's a, a queer Christian recording artist. Um, mm-hmm. Married and she, Christian. She's married. That's right. And she just put out her album Preacher's Kid, which is basically all about her um, experience in the church as an LGBTQ person and like dealing and wrestling with it. And it's, it, I think everyone needs to listen to it. I think if you are, call yourself a Christian, you like owe yourself to listen to this album. It's only 20 minutes. So mm-hmm. Yeah, that I was. I wondered actually. I had it rehearsed in my mind today. If you would, if you would bring that subject up, and so maybe another conversation for another time. But mm-hmm. I think it's important to be honest and curious. And uh, thank you, Glendon. Mm-hmm. It's, a beautiful, it's a beautiful album and an exploration into uh, the human heart and how that the human heart is negotiating constantly with the church yeah. <laughs> and the church negotiating with the human hearts that make it so and so i appreciate you and the work you're doing it's uh it's important to uh, like the album talks a lot about like being yourself or finding yourself yeah Uh, whether that's in the church or outside of the church and how important it is to be yourself and love yourself Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and recognize that like you aren't beloved because of things you've done or not done or beliefs you have or don't have. Uh, you are beloved because you are. Mm-hmm. And recognizing that and living into that, you can find that maybe that was fulfillment all along and that you're searching for nothing. And the answer is nothing. Mm-hmm. And so that's the wrap on the podcast. If you're going to drink on Valentine's Day, I'll take a shot for you. Uh, <laughs> if you're not, like Glendon, watch Ryan Johnson's films again. Ooh, ooh! I should watch Brick again for Valentine's Day. That'd be so good. Oh, there's a TV show I really like. That's I, I should know what it's called, but it's like really short episodes, like nine minutes long each, and it's about a couple meeting in a pub, who a couple that's separated. Um, just be, before they go into their therapy session and they never actually go into the therapy session it's just the like awkward 10 minutes before and it's one season and it's really clever and well done but nice. you should definitely edit that out of your podcast i don't remember what it's called <laughs> oh, i can find out what it's called and just yeah. give the title i believe it's called state of the union two recommendations there we go also read idolatry of god by mm. peter rollins because mm-hmm. yeah and but... the act commentary by willie jennings because yeah he's... yes He's super smart, and he would probably really like the Grace Baldridge album. Ooh, nice. <laughs> Thank you guys for hosting uh, me. I'm yeah. yeah. honored to be your guest. Thank you for uh, coming on. You were one of our first guests that actually wanted to come on before we had asked. <laughs> I, I'm like, please pick me. I'm cool. <laughs> I, I feel like just the way that's right. I'm sure Maddie wanted to come on. It's not that she she felt obligated to because we asked her to. 
I, I'm just, I'm just saying, Nikayla was like very much wanted to come on the podcast, and we That's haven't true. had a guest like that before. It's mostly uh, been like, yeah, sure, I'll guess I'll come on. I was like, I mean, hey, I support you, and I love this, and there's no yeah. pressure. I'm not like, please, please have me. I'll be mad if you don't. I'm like, if if I could be of any assistance in in your cool thing, yeah. you do, I would love that. So. We've also never said yes to Ben, so there's that. <laughs> yeah, dude, yeah. <laughs> but hey, we sent out a public call on the last episode, and Ben, and you didn't respond. He didn't say anything. Consider it rescinded. I must assume he just didn't listen to the episode, or he just doesn't like us anymore. We just want to thank Nikayla again for coming on the podcast. Uh, she provided so much insight and wisdom. And if you want to check her out and uh, hear more from her, her Twitter handle is at Nikayla Rees. It will be in the show notes. And yeah, so good night, Seattle. So long, Toronto. And Ben, you're out of the will. Uh, also, love yourself, love others. Um, drink, 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 drink on Valentine's Day. The end.